Welcome to the APL show. I'm Adam Botsevsky and with me I have Rich Park and we are going <laughs> to continue from the last episode where we were reacting to this video, change the way you write, change mm. the way you think. Um, but before we continue with that, uh, Richard has an announcement. Last week we hosted the, um, the APL Seeds 23 online user meeting. That was a great time. Had lots of fun uh, talking with new and experienced APLers uh, all together. Recordings from that day should be published by the time that this recording comes out, or at least very close together. So you can go to dialogue.tv to check those out, or maybe we'll link to uh, a blog post or something that has a central link where you can find out information, a little bit of text about each presentation, and then and then links to all the videos. Um, yeah, that's it. So I guess we continue. I think so. Oh, this um, I'll try a little bit to remember the context because at the beginning he's talking about about notations and stuff, and then and then the, I guess the end of where we got up to was uh, he does mention some APL examples and talks about uh, inner product and stuff. But I think from here on out, if I remember, it's um, other notations. It's talking about all kinds of different tools, software tools for doing different things. So I think that's what we're going to see. Well, we will see. <laughs> so therein lies the first tension of this talk, um, what we call programming in the large versus programming in the small. This, this concept was created in 1975, and in 2022, we're still not very good at solving it. So I want you to consider a program that is written in Spark. Right? By and large, we can consider this a program in the large because it's going to run on many machines, a cluster of machines, and it's the kind of program that many people will touch. Right? So the real result is that we have individual programmers who have to follow a rigid set of rules and run the clusters when they want to do and try something. Right? It's quite hard to use when you compare it with immediately coding up a solution on your computer. The Spark ecosystem leaves very little room for personal sparks of creativity, which will often solve a problem in a much far superior way. So, the question is this, what do we prefer? Do we prefer to work within a rigid rule set that offers no creativity, or do we want to work... Quick, before he, uh, before he answers, what do you prefer? Um, La well, obviously... what's he describing? Large systems with rigid rules where you have to abide by those rules and i guess you have less flexibility yeah obviously or... i i prefer the small thing where i'm free to express myself <laughs> i mean what can the I implication say? is that the advantage of the large system is the um the scaling the maintenance um there, there must be some kind of tipping point if, if you end up as you're speaking about these sparks of creativity um, you might be able to come up with a better algorithm, a more efficient algorithm. So where's the tipping point where you, you throw more brute power at the problem and it runs faster because it's on a supercomputing cluster uh, mm. than doing it on a small computer? Uh, 
with a better algorithm because you're able to experiment and express yourself better. Obviously, well, no, yeah. nobody can answer that. Yes, but, yeah. uh, but it depends. Yeah, but yeah. it's interesting. And with it, personal it, flair. Sorry. No, I'm saying it's just it's just an interesting <laughs> consideration. You might be able to run things faster because you have a better algorithm, even on a small computer compared to a supercomputer. Certainly for some problems. Yeah. And if your algorithm's sufficiently bad, then, then... you'll never finish even with a supercomputer. <laughs> yeah. Um, anything else? I guess that's the the typical APL story is leaning towards, even though we we know and we're aware of large systems that exist um, written in APL, the the typical user story is that it leans towards the small and the direct uh, contribution of um, like people solving the problems uh, in contrast to the types of IT experts who are required in order to set up these large systems. And that's a slightly ongoing conflict, I'd say. Yeah, but I think there can be, there can be a huge difference even from a small change Let's say you've got unacceptable performance. You can't push more performance out with your current algorithm out of a single computer. Going from a, running a system on a single computer to running it on a cluster on some large interconnected cloud thingy or whatever it might be uh, is a huge step. And there's enormous overhead that you're mm -hmm. adding. Um, if you're able to just make it a little bit more efficient locally and then be able to run, sorry, make it a little bit more efficient and then you can run it locally instead on a single computer, that can be enormous cost saving, energy saving. Yeah. So there could be, uh, it could be beneficial to at least do prototyping in the small to come up with better algorithms. You might need to eventually port to something large, mm. but you'll be able to develop small, at least programming in the small. Right? There is um, this notion of um, that Jared Hofstadter came up with, uh, individualistic cultures and collectivist cultures. And in the context of software development, in the context of data science and data engineering, we often have to choose a side. So what ends up happening is the data scientists will all code, you know, with personal flair on their Jupyter notebooks, and the data engineers will come in and wrap the processors around that. That's a bit complicated, basically, you know? The question is this, is there a way to eat your cake and have it too? And I think the answer is yes, through the use of multiple notations, which I'll discuss in a bit. But first, I want to continue on this digression on programming in the large. Russ Cox, the, uh, the co-creator of the Go programming language, has been known to say that software engineering is what happens to code when you add time and other developers, other programmers. It's a riff on this quote by Titus Winters, of course. Now, let me turn this question around and, and focus it on data engineering. What happens to your data engineering stuff when you add other programmers and time and other data scientists? So today we see many products to the tune of, oh, it's simple. We will take a Jupyter notebook, we'll wrap it up in a REST or a gRPC service, just, just chuck a load balancer in front of it and you're golden. That's, that's not a problem, okay? I want to make it clear, it's not a problem because we do live in a society that rewards fast turnaround, right? The faster you can, you can package up stable diffusion into a product, the faster the VCs are gonna come knocking on your door to give you money. But what happens when you add time and other programmers? Well, you'll end up with an ecosystem of overly complicated processes. Now everyone has to specialize a bit, and that sucks because I'm a human being, and specialization is for insects. 
Now, <laughs> specialization is for insects. Yeah, also, I just wanted to take a little glance over all this. Uh, That's a lot of stuff. And they're reminiscent of the XKCD about standards, I guess. Yeah. You're going to wrap this in some other thing that to make it easier. And now we've got one more thing that you need to be able to, to use. I find this with libraries in general. Adding mm. a library has a huge cost. It doesn't, it has to be really worth it for it to be worth it. Mm. Because if it doesn't really add a lot of, of ease to what I do, there's so much more that needs to be learned and taken care of and updated and dependencies and whatever not. But what he's, what he's saying actually reminds me of something my father said, um, see if I can find it. Uh, let's see. Uh, I, uh, do, 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 do. Yeah. Some of these things are definitely, they're just words to me. <laughs> <I'm not sure. laughs> Um, here we go. So, um, my father registered a, uh, like a patent trademark, something, uh, with this logo. Um, oh yeah. And this, he used this in this promotion for his, yeah, his APL consulting business. Mm -hmm. This is way long time ago. So uh, you couldn't easily typeset this. That's why it's so all it's hand, handwritten. Yeah, it's it, it keeps going around and around. Yeah, it's, it's circular, right? Communication means faster. Coding means fewer coders. Means easier communication. Means faster coding. Means fewer coders. Means easier communication. And it keeps going like that. Right? Yeah. And he's using that as a as a um, a symbol of of the APL. Yes. Programming, right? That, and, and in the video we're watching here, uh, you notice this also, that you have these, these groups of people. They're the domain experts, right? And then there are the programmers. Yes. Having that split has an enormous cost again. Mm. As, long, as long as your domain expert is able to write his code by himself, all the misunderstandings and specification documents and reviews and cycles in the development, they just don't exist, right? The domain expert, he knows what it is he wants. He knows what the algorithm is. He's an expert on this field. He just needs to express it in such a way that the computer will do the work for him. Yes. But when you throw in programmers that do not know this field, Right? Then he needs to explain to him, oh, but this is how it works. And maybe he can't express it in, in a human language that's easy to understand. But if he has a specification language that's also executable, that is easy enough for him to use, then he can express it with that. And there's also a way that my father taught me to program APL in, in a top-down manner. He would use, he would write like a sentence uh, uh, saying, uh, stating what it is I'm after in, in APL, mm. for example, uh, the primes until a hundred. Yeah. And then he would execute that in APL and, and APL would respond, uh, value error until it doesn't know what that word means. <laughs> and then he'd say, well, until that is, that means the numbers from one onto that number, which is just IOTA. 
So we define until as being just to cover for iota. Okay, so we run it again, primes until, and now it gives a, a, a value error on primes. It doesn't know what that is. So I say, well, primes are uh, numbers that have exactly two divisors. And then you, you try again and it's it now it steps into primes and it gives a value error on the divisors <laughs> and so on. And you define each of these until you can define them in terms of primitives and then the program runs and you're done, you go home. Yes. Right? There was never any spec, there was never any discussion with anybody. You just explain what it is. And and he said he this is how he would work as a consultant for, for companies at the time when uh, factories and so on were computerizing. He would go in and ask people, you know, what are you doing? And you'd write that down. They say, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Until they have completely specified it in terms of APL primitives, what it is <laughs> to do. And then you run the code. And this, uh, and then they, would, then they would ask him, uh, after he's asked all these questions, he said, okay, he has no more questions. Then they ask him, how long time does he estimate that it will take for him to code this up? And he said, oh no, it's done. <laughs> Here you go, now it runs. Well, that's a feel slightly idealized in this in this day and age. Yeah, there's a lot the world is a lot a lot more complex and uh, that's true. But the idea here is the more you can cut yeah. out of these layers, the mm -hmm. uh the better results you'll have. Yes. Are you and done looking at the list can... here? Yeah, I'm done looking at the list. <laughs> go on. What I'm trying to say is um, this is not a knock on these products. I, I use many of these tools myself, but it's often I sit down and think, why do we really need this, right? Sure, some of these are what Fred Brooks would call essential complexity, but I would say that majority of these things are accidental complexity that comes out from not sitting down and thinking our problems through. And as data, how, how do we think about problems, right? As mentioned earlier, we solve, when we solve problems, we're actually establishing the rules of how the elements of the problems can interact with one another. By the way, for the listeners, he's now showing the words on good notation or on good notations. And when there are rules and elements, we call it a language. And when that language is written down, we call that a notation. As data engineers, the elements are things like the database, the machine learning algorithm, the Jupyter notebook. Right? The, the rules are not whether we can add a string to an integer, but rather how we can keep our data in the correct shape and form across time and space and people. Who here hasn't dealt with you know, multiple sources of truth for one thing, right? People who apply data mesh without actually applying data mesh, that is. So let's go back say to what this is. Iverson bloke. Um, Ken Iverson won the Turing Award in 1979. And in his Turing Award speech, uh, his Turing Award speech is actually called Notation as a Tool of Thought. Good notation often leads to new discoveries. For example, um, by simply inventing a new notation, John Conway from the aforementioned Conway of game, Conway's Game of Life, he discovered a whole new zoo of knots called rational tangles. Right? Rational tangles are actually very useful in studying DNA topology. And I think I've digressed, but the point I'm trying to get at is Better notation allows us to understand things better because it allows us to frame the problem differently. And in Everson's talk, he actually noted the criteria for what passes as good notation. A good notation, according to Iverson, allows you to express your problems easily. It is suggestive of more things that you can do. It subordinates details. It doesn't take much effort to use, and you can obviously see that it is obviously correct very easily. 
Now, I can talk at length about each of these properties. In fact, I've talked at length about representing problems. But I want to focus on the next three things. Uh, suggestivity, subordination of detail, and economy. As you have seen when I was explaining the inner product, realization of what the dot does suddenly suggests to you that you can put any other binary functions in, on either side of the dot. So, so here the important part is that instead of using a single symbol for a cross vector matrix, whatever product, and then we're splitting out the essential operations that are inside it, which are multiplication and addition. Um, so first there's multiplication going on and then we add up the products and that is actually what this inner product is. And by in APL, we spell it out as plus dot times, but the dot is a dyadic operator, and we can put any two dyadic functions on the sides. And in fact, some are relatively common, and like and or dot end. Hmm. And you can also do things like and dot equal, where it's it's an and done on the equality. So here, by by splitting it up and showing what the components are, it's suggesting that you could swap out components and achieve new functionality. Yeah, and then the hard design work is figuring out what those components are. Like what are the, what are what are essential operations for a wide range of domains for a general purpose language, at least. Ah, and there has to be a balance because obviously yeah. you could you could think that the ultimate suggestivity would be splitting it up all the way down to the NAND, NAND gates or the NOR gates, <laughs> right? Then you could substitute in anything you want. You can make the computer whenever. I think that's why Iverson also has economy, right? It has to be and so subordination of detail, right? Then then it would not be subordination of detail. It would not be economy either. Mm. It would blow up entirely. And an example of this, I think, is something that came up on uh, the Arraycast that will either come out uh, before or right after this episode um, with the scan. So in APL, uh, scan is a primitive operator and you give it a dyadic function, for example, plus scan, which is spelled backslash or backslash bar. Um, and that gives us the prefix sums of a list. In J, uh, there that has been split up mm. recognizing that there are actually two parts going on here there's yes there's a summation which is a actually a plus reduction yep. and there is the formation of prefixes so it's plus over each prefix of the array well, so you can do the, that with a well in some cases like yeah something a list <laughs> you can do like a, a catenate scan Yes. And then plus reduce each. Yeah, that doesn't work in the general case. It's a bit awkward in APL. No, actually, but it's quite useful for demonstrating what yes. uh, scan oh, yes. is. Although then you're, you're actually already using a scan with the <laughs> yeah. so it's a bit cheating there. It's maybe better to do uh, the iota length, take each on the enclose of the array. Oh, yeah. So then you actually get the prefixes taken for each one um, and then you apply a, sum a summation to each one in J I don't know if you know this uh, a plus scan is spelled plus forward slash backward slash backslash mm. um, so backslash in itself applies its operand to each prefix mm. but it doesn't necessarily reduce 
each prefix. And yeah, it takes exactly. a monadic function. So we do plus slash each, but the each is built into that. So instead of being an each, it's an prefixes. Thing. Yeah. Um, and then Some prefixes. Yeah. if you actually want the prefixes uh, enclosed or boxed as they are in, in J, then you can just do an uh, enclose scan. Mm. It's not a scan then really, it's a prefixes. prefixes. Right? So they're just yeah. enclose prefixes. That gives you the prefix and that works without the issues of the mm. concatenation, I think. Um, but which level is better? Mm. Having just prefixes and then summation of each one or is it the running sum? I think it's especially mm. hard in that example because in both cases, the work it takes to get to the other to the alternative to get you know uh in apl in order to get something resembling just enclosed prefixes or whatever else you might want is not that much and in j to get the plus scan equivalent is not that much so i feel like that's really straddling the line there between yeah but that like, is a balance that this language designer has to yeah, yeah. To deal with uh, interestingly in bqn it doesn't quite use slash and backslash it uses like Kind of like um, grave and an acute. Little yeah, but they look like superscript slash and backslash. Yes. Um, and there, it, it even though uh, Marshall Lochman would design most of BQN, um, is well familiar with the differences between APL and J, mm. and has a lot of J experience. Um, he went back to just having the scan primitive do have the built-in reductions, but there's a separate function rather than operator that immediately returns the prefixes mm. um, which is monadic up arrow i believe um and and so uh, but again that doesn't have the same functionality because it's a function rather than operator then you have to do an each afterwards and there are certain things that cannot easily be optimized in the interpreter but then maybe we're going into Interpreter uh, compiler. Yeah, should, should the implementation, implementation does, should that influence how you design the language, or how do you think about it? Do you think about it as applying a function to the prefixes, or do you think about it as getting prefixes and then applying a function to each one? Um, yeah. What if you only want to apply to some of the prefixes? Prefixes, um, and uh, there's another one is uh, inner product. Bcon doesn't have inner product as a primitive j does but you have to include the reduction so it's a inner product is a kind of a reduction a reduction of the other function so plus dot times is actually a plus reduction over some of the products it's actually uh mm. plus reduction over the, the the diagonal of all the possible products um and in j you spell that as plus slash dot times so plus reduction dot times. And then because of J's word formation, you can't have a slash and a dot next to each other. So you have to have a space. So the whole thing becomes plus slash space dot asterisk instead of APLs plus dot times. Mm. And at that point, uh, I start <laughs> going, no, this isn't as nice notation anymore. I understand yeah. it's more general. Um, mm. But it's actually quite rare that, for example, I I need the prefixes. It's yeah. almost always a scan. So I was kind of thinking, yeah. But there's a there's a line there. There's a level. You can't just blow everything up, and you can't hide everything either. Then it's mm. too much. And 
plus slash time slash and so on is probably good instead of having some in product and and running some running product but it's interesting like i don't have a final answer to which level it should be at <laughs> and this is what suggestivity is your code suggests new code your solution suggests new solutions think about this are there any data engineering products out there that does this now let's talk about subordination of uh, detail, right? I think it's pretty given in modern day programming that abstraction is a good thing, up to a certain point, that is. Aaron Sue begs to differ. Well, abstraction is a good, <laughs> is thing. A good thing. Well, it's again, in, in, the, in these levels, it's necessary at a point, right? Yeah, but at what point? It's, <laughs> again, there's well, a, I was actually gonna balance. I was actually going to pause this to come back on the... Um, Data engineering tools do suggestivity, and it's like, well, it's this then a Python thing, right? There should be one, ideally one, normal, good or whatever adjective way of doing a certain thing, which is nice because then when you Google how to do X in Y, it comes up with an answer, and you can just plug your bits in, and, and then you're happy. Um, Hasn't Python abandoned that idea though? I don't know, maybe. Yeah, well, it, I suppose notationally, because they've got all this like mapping lambda stuff that's becoming more popular. They've got the list comprehensions. Yeah, list comprehensions. And they also have normal loops, so you have to choose. <laughs> so, so maybe. Um, and then, and then on top of that, with the ecosystem, yes, you've got packages for everything, but I, I imagine I don't use it often enough to know. But I imagine for certain things, you've got several competing packages. Must be. I know that's true in the in the javascript world but there it's gone completely out of hand right we're drowning in in libraries actually even no it must no I, I do use some things where I, I look and it's like several github repos that are all python packages doing something similar but they're all a little bit uh different um there are these ridiculous or maybe they're joke libraries for javascript is number and is even is odd uh, like, like, um, and I think a common example of it, one of your favorites, is the cutting, say, a text into, oh, yeah. into pieces. Yeah, you might think that it's very simple. Just you know, you cut or cut on something. Cut on but space. there's Split so up. many. Yeah, there's so many different ways actually to do the cut. What happens if you have a trailing delimiter? Does that yeah. mean that you empty have partition empty partition at the end or not? What happens if you have multiple consecutive uh, delimiters, leading a delimiter? And even just like uh, implementation-wise, there's is it JavaScript slice and splice or something like that? <laughs> like one of them is, I mean, that's actually different to very different to what you're describing, uh, where one of them gives you a new um, value that is the split the text split into substrings and one of them modifies the string itself. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah, no, but that's that's not uh, that's not cutting. It's not the though. same that's, as that's um, behaviors of trimming it. But but the splitting thing, sure, you can make a a a function in APL utility function for itself called split, although that's an unfortunate name because it has so many letters in it split uh, that it's, it's, also, more, more, uh, it's often more letters than the number of characters in the definition of it. So you might want to use cut instead. There's also a primitive called split, so that could be confusing. confusing. So you call it cut, and then it's only three characters. You're actually saving space by defining <laughs> cut in three, uh, three characters. Um, although you might need spaces around that word. 
But then you can't see what exactly does it do. And then later on, you come back to the system, you want to extend it, you need to cut something. Can you can you just use the name cut and, and rely on it doing the right type of cutting that you're expecting? Or do you have to go look up its definition? And it's so short. What if you just wrote the APL code inline every time? Yes, you're repeating yourself. Maybe that's not a good principle to adhere to. Don't repeat yourself. Because if it's short, what you're repeating, and people can see immediately what it is you're doing, rather than having to go look up what it is you're doing, that might actually be a benefit. Hmm. Remember, the code is read much more much more often than it's written. So you have to type the same thing a couple of times, sure. But the reader doesn't have to go and look something up. Even if the IDE provides, you know, you hover over the name of the mouse and it shows you the definition, but it's still more than just being able to directly read something. A, a fluent APL reader can read one of these idiomatic ways of yeah, cutting things. Small enough, yeah. Yeah. That's the limit, really. That's a handful of primitives in a train or so. Yeah. Um, I've read a bunch of writing from Iverson, and I'm convinced that he's actually one of those few people who knows the difference between abstraction, ag aggregation, and agglomeration. The differences between these three things are very subtle. They, they all sort of mean taking many things and making one thing out of each other. So let me give you a sort of one-minute version that won't really do it much justice. Abstraction is basically hiding your things under a name. And if you come from the Lambda Calculus School of Computer Science, your basic form of abstraction is wrapping things in a function. If you come from the Java School of, um, of, of Computer Science, then you've got more ways of abstracting things. You can use interfaces, you can use subclasses, and so on and so forth. Right? Aggregation is basically the same thing, but you get rid of the, the underlying details. When I talk about um, the average height of all Australians, I don't actually mean every single human being. I, I've forgotten about them. I only talk about the average height. And lastly, agglomeration is basically referring to a collection of things, and you always refer to the collection of things. And that is what subordination of detail is. When you write inner products in, in APL, you, don't, you always write the same three symbols. You don't write np.dot as you would in uh, NumPy. That's abstraction. And subordination of detail is actually a very useful tool. Imagine if you can have the whole function in front of you every time you try to solve a, fun uh, a problem. How would that change the way you solve problems, right? Now let's talk about economy. Earlier when I gave the Spark example, there was an example of a lack of economy. To do things with Spark is generally very hard. You've got to do so many other things just to change one small thing. I also mentioned earlier that with the Einstein summation thing, that it works mostly on pen and paper because working with equations on computer computers are not, is not that great. And, and when you work with Maple, for example, it, it doesn't give you that, that sense of manipulation that you have with pen and paper, right? So when I said writing engages your brain in systems to thinking, it comes with caveat. You need to be able to man manipulate your thoughts efficiently and quickly enough, right? If you're bogged down trying to get your thoughts into, into the medium, into the computer, into the paper, by the time you come to manipulate them, your ideas will have already evaporated. So for a lot of things, pen and paper is still rule supreme. But having to transfer that, that writings on pen and paper to a computer would mean that you will need a different set of notation for your computer. And this ties in very neatly to a principled statement I want to make. There is no one notation to rule them all. Like it or not, we use multiple languages and multiple notation all the time. Cries in mathematics. in more context Sorry. than you can. <laughs> 
Yeah, okay. I hear. Isn't isn't that what the Mathematica project is? Some kind of like attempt towards maybe that's a too bold a claim for some from someone like me who doesn't really know anything about it. <laughs> but um, um, I think it's it's, it's tries just... to be more than just medical notation written into a computer. No, but no, I it's think supposed I... to be. It's trying to be one notation. That, oh, one uh, notation to rule them, rule yeah. them all, right? You you put in what but you it's want, not an, it's and not a the, notation the engine figures it for everything. It's a it's a programming language. And, but it's not a good notation for certain other things that you might want no, to and, and to be but... fair, actually do uh notice this at least in Wolfram Alpha is you put in it's more like a kind of Google for computational things. Okay, that, that Wolfram Alpha is a natural language uh yeah, model thing. Understander, whatever it is. And then it and... but it gives you back stuff that's in the notation of whatever the domain is you asked for the diagrams that are appropriate the mathematical formulae etc but so uh, it parses things down to or whatever you call that process processes the natural language builds up a, a wolfram language or mathematica formula that's mm. and then presents that it doesn't necessarily come Oh, it doesn't come back with natural language results either. You can hook up one of these artificial intelligence engines for that. They've already done that. <laughs> um, so that they can take those clear and precise results and make them fuzzy and human looking. Um, no, but I think I, I'd rather go into the comparison here between Iverson notation, that early proto-APL thing that Iverson used handwritten right. yep. or or in print but that was a nightmare to print um, <laughs> and, and then apl right Cause now when you actually need to make it into a programming language that you could use yeah it can't just be the same and i have experienced this as well i've tried i mean occasionally i use apl in handwritten i remember when i was in high school i tried using apl instead of traditional mathematical notation mm. for manipulating things and I found that it wasn't as pleasant actually I kind of missed the regular notation had I used Iverson notation I might have been best of both worlds um, I yeah think... I noticed that when we've been reading these papers recently and some of the things look just tighter and neater from the perspective of yeah someone handwriting it in order to manipulate expressions to to get to a result like you were allowed to so the two uh two ones that come to my mind are not is an overbar like it is in boolean algebra mm -hmm. traditional boolean algebra it's like a bar over the top and then you can put bars on your bars so that makes this nice neat expression for de morgan's law it's um, like a a square root without the rooty thing on the left, right? It's just the overbar. You're allowed to put square roots inside square roots and so on. That's true, yeah. You can do it with square roots as well. Or for say, for example, also division with a long horizontal bar. Squaring squares, you can exponentiate all the way up yeah. if you want. Uh, and the other one being the inner product, which in the early examples, which are a lot of descriptions of um, of low-level computer systems like here's the algorithm for fetching an instruction from a register um there's a lot of inner products there and the notation for that which is like the for us left operand on top and the right operand on bottom mm -hmm. uh actually looks really nice compared to spreading it out right uh, yes 
inner product does look a bit funny when you're handwritten. You can also see how the outer product notation comes from there. So if you look, see an inner product as a as reductions over the diagonal of the uh, of the other operand applied, and then if you don't do that reduction over diagonals, then you just have an outer product. So mm. you have these two symbols on top of each other. So so what we have today plus dot times is just plus on top of a times, much like you write like plus minus. Uh, yes. Then, but but just on top of each other, and then if you put in a null symbol, a little empty circle instead at the top one, then you don't do that post-processing step. And then spreading that out on the line to be three symbols, giving that positional thing a symbol, just like exponentiation got a symbol from mm. previously being positional. Um, then you have the null symbol on the left, which was the jot. So that's how we got jot dot times, for example. Mm. Um, and But there are more things, right? There in those old notations, you had implied sizes. So you could have uh, like a, a, a null vector or an all one vector and they auto size to match the other arguments. Uh, or even more than that, you could have a prefix vector, right? So they had these alpha and omega, they would form uh, prefix vectors, suffix vectors, meaning they're all booleans, but they have uh, so all zero, but they have three, lead, leading, leading, three ones. leading ones or three yeah. training ones. Like, but you don't have to specify the size because it just has to match the you other argument, yeah. right? which is fine in handwritten, hand-reasoned math. Everybody will understand. It gets a bit hairy when you do it with a computer. <laughs> um, Although, I, I mean, I guess you could have, if not, at least if not for some oddities and how things have been designed. You could definitely model that as an operator if you so wanted. Yeah, you could you could have it so that you have a mask on the left of, of uh, replicate or compress. And if you don't give it all the elements, it just pads with sufficient zeros for the rest mm -hmm. or ones or whatever you would decide should be the default. It could be yeah. done. In fact, we've done that with, uh, um, with partition. No, partition and close. Partition and close. I'll give it a short, short left. Yeah, you give it a short yeah. left argument, and then you will just assume the rest of them are zeros, which means continue this partition hmm. and leads us to some things that I, I didn't even, when, when designing that, I didn't even think about all the fallouts of that. But something I find really nice is we can now write, so it's it's left shoe um, for partition in close, and you can write one, one partition mm -hmm. data, and that gives us head and tail. First element yeah. is a separate vector, and then all the rest of them after that. I find that yeah, that's very nice. nice. Yeah. And you can you can take a head of a certain size by having zero. So if you want to take the first three elements and the rest, you'd write one zero zero one, and that chops it. I think that's pretty cool. Mm. Anyway. Yeah, let's see what other notations oh, we got. I'm going to quickly enumerate through them, but the, the, the easiest example would be specification and implementation languages. In many other words, it's type, uh, the type language and the term language, right? Um, so in, in languages like Go, it's not very obvious that you're writing in two different sets of languages, uh, two different sets of languages when you're writing things like a function signature. But if you use uh, languages like Idris or Haskell, it is very obvious that you're working with types as one language and working on the terms as, on, as another language. Um, and sometimes of these specification implementation language, only one of them actually makes it out into the medium. Take JavaScript, for example. The types are still there. It's just stuck in the head of the programmer. right? You don't write the types, but it's stuck in the head of the programmer. Um, and because every programmer thinks 
differently about types and thinks differently about the programs. You, what you have is you have a thousand different um, type languages, essentially, for every programmer that touches the same JavaScript program. Another clear example is when we need to work across different computational models. Right? We drop down to writing regular expressions all the time, but when we need something database we write SQL. In these two examples, uh, regular expression and SQL, it's very clear that you're writing in a different notation. But equally, what I want to point out is that if you use things like Link or SQL Alchemy or, or um, Snowpark, you're working with the same language written differently. Think about that. Your DF dot group by is exactly the same as SQL, but it's written differently. Okay? And this is something I'll talk about in the next few minutes. The third way that we can use um, multiple notation is in hierarchical use. Right? So um, Naughty Dog, a game developer of Last of Us, had developed a new programming language called Goal, which is a Lisp, and it works on, as a scripting language over the core, which was written in C++. And um, if you're interested in Goal, by the way, there's uh, opengoal.dev, which tries to reverse engineer Goal, and that's pretty cool. Now, there are other ways of using multiple uh, notations and multiple languages. Come find me after the talk um, if you want to know more. The point I'm trying to make is that we do use multiple languages and multiple notations all the time, at the same time, by the way. And this is useful, right? Who here likes to solve problems on Project Euler or, or lead code, I guess? No? Okay, so one of the funnest things that you can do with Project Euler and lead code is that you can solve the same problem multiple times with different languages. And when you do so, more often than not, it, you end up seeing the problem in a different light. And I like to call this binocular vision. Each of our eyes see, uh, take the scene in front of us and see a different, slightly offset and different planar projection. You could also, if, if it's cheap enough to implement, uh, if it's low enough effort to, to implement some algorithm uh, or algorithms in general, then you could also stay with the same language and solve the problem in various different ways. It doesn't yeah. have to be different languages. Well, that's very fun for the... Well, it's something that you practice with those types of Euler and unleak code problems, but then actually when you're writing um, real applications, it ends up being a bit of a benefit that you have those different perspectives ready to go. I think it comes even... I don't. I haven't participated in the code and project Euler, so I can't really speak. But I would assume that when you solve the problem, you solve the problem. Whereas specifically for code golf, where you're looking for the shortest solution in characters, mm. um, there there's very much an incentive to scrap everything and start from scratch with a different approach, because maybe even though the final result will be the same but maybe it will be shorter to write it this way. Not because code in itself should be as short as possible, although brevity is in general good, um, economy. But here, this pushes you to try things out from different angles. And uh, he has a, a uh, the video here has a, a, key, a quote by Alan Key, Key, how do you say that? Key. Okay. Uh, a change in perspective is worth 80 IQ points. Um, and uh, hey, a change a change in approach is worth 80 bytes in code golf too. So. <laughs> <laughs> of the scene in front of us. And when you put them together, you actually see the scene in front of you with uh, greater fidelity. So 
Now we can ask, what are the properties of good notation, right? When you want to talk about good notation. Here I listed three, interrupt, fit for purpose, and that they're distinctive. Data engineering products by and large fail all three. This is because as a community, we somehow stuck with the mindset that there should be one notation to rule them all. And this is rather backwards. We want one environment, multiple languages. What ends up happening is one language, multiple environments, right? We don't want that. And, and the cynical version of me would say, we end up with that because, you know, environment capture is richly rewarded by investors. Uh, I'm cynical, right? But let's talk about an interrupt. When, when, when I say interrupt, I don't mean, oh, let's just all use gRPC. And, uh, that's one form of interrupt. I think interrupt. actually. What I talk about is interrupt. Yeah, how do I get this? Thanks. <laughs> um, I think actually it might speak more to the like difficulty of uh defining good standards for interrupt like if you want if the goal is to have one environment where everyone writes a tool a notation or whatever that works in that environment then ahead of time you have to kind of agree or hope that over time you know a little bit like http i guess because that's yeah, I was about like, to bring that example because that's yeah. like one where like every tool's talking to each other over http so maybe 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 it's um, not a disaster, right? Yeah. It's, oh, uh... no, but but the problem is you might not imagine the needs in the interop from the oh, outside. Of other, um... So you make a standard like HTTP, which is all great. Um, and then you find out that you want to use this in a more interactive, immediate fashion. You need, <laughs> we you need web sockets. Yes, right. And then, then you could... Uh, to come up with something ad hoc for that, where you the server and client agree on how to communicate, but it's not in the standard from the beginning. It's also not really an answer to the question I just thought as well, because when when you think of one environment, you can also imagine like literally, I've got like a VS Code up, and in one tab, I've got my I've got some like APL that I'm iterating on, and in another tab, I've got some like JavaScript that's doing something, and another tab I've got some like Python thing that's doing something or whatever it whatever it could be, but um, then what you really want is to iterate on all of those simultaneously. Like when you drop down into like you, you don't well yeah you sort of do your regular expression then you move on but it's there in in the same environment as the rest of the code uh, in whatever language. But why do they need to interoperate? If you are you saying they're part of one system? Potentially, yeah. If um, if the idea is that different notations could be good for different, I mean, this is what someone said in a Arraycast letter um, about like should try the Raku language, which was Perl six, and apparently like that's a very pleasant experience in terms of uh, it supports lots of paradigms fairly richly, and so you can. I mean, at first you'd learn it, you won't know them. Um, so you'll sort of be uh, clambering around different problems doing it the way that you've sort of learned so far, but maybe you'll pick up a new technique or a new style of coding something and then turns out that like, oh, for this problem, do it this way. And then for this other problem or part of the problem, actually you want to do some other, do some other mode of working. Um, but I can see I can see issues here with we mentioned before the types. 
interrupt between things is very hard if they don't have types that map to each other. Yep. Um, so, and, and, and we, we see it very much with APL and we have this uh, called JSON, for example. So we convert an APL array to JSON and there are things that you cannot represent properly in JSON. Mm. In, in, in like the null. It's not just the, I, well, null is not really the problem, but, um, but an enclosed array a scalar that contains stuff. Just enclose one, two, three. It doesn't exist in on the JavaScript side. Oh uh, yeah. Um that's just the one and multidimensional arrays is maybe the biggest thing. Yeah. You can do a list of lists, but though but they or arrays of arrays in, in JavaScript, but they would more correspond to APLs vectors of vectors. So then how do you how do you yeah, distinguish exactly. between a vec a vector of uh of three vectors and a matrix with three rows? So again, that's something I think has evolved over time of like uh, most languages use list of lists. Oh, but it's not really the same thing when you have... No, no, both, but I mean, right? for they can all uh, interop in that way. Sure, and we can interrupt with that to APL too, but we can't, but the other way it doesn't work. Yeah, and there are some things in, in JSON that we cannot easily get into APL either, or it's not clear how you should. When you have Booleans, true, false in JSON, mm -hmm. But in APL, we don't distinguish between one zero and, and other numbers. Yep. And how should you import it? It's not so obvious. Um, and is that a setting? Can you can you choose can one? You choose I know to that, have them one and zero. I, I know that I you get remember. um, yeah. By default, it'd be like enclose quote true quote. Yeah. Um, I, I don't remember if that's a setting. We might. Um, it's is that pro it's almost definitely been discussed, trip. but I don't know. Yeah, well. it doesn't round trip. Uh, whereas nulls, you can import them either as, again, an enclosed character vector null or our special quad null value mm -hmm. uh, thing. But at least that round trips. Right. Um, and uh, another thing is dialog APL doesn't have infinities. So for our JSON 5 import we have to deal with positive negative infinity and um, and then as well we just do enclosed character vectors because they are not ambiguous because you can have can't have enclosed that's that specifying an upper limit but you don't want one <laughs> but well, you must in, have in that infinities you must have that field filled, yeah. In a, in a in JSON five. Oh, I guess because it's data. JSON five is just a lot. Uh, just yeah, ECMAScript. Yeah, you're right. Five, we're right? we're using it for config mainly, but it is a general data. Yeah, it is, and and JavaScript has uh, infinities because uh, IEEE floats have infinities and done. Mm -mm, right? mm. And do you actually need infinities in JavaScript? Probably not. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, that's interesting. Other than directly mathematical things where they're using JavaScript as a calculator, I don't think I've ever seen any of the use. No. <laughs> use infinities for any useful purpose. Same thing for NANDs, really. Mm. Uh, don't use them, you just use them to detect <laughs> yeah. that something went wrong. Yep. And then occasionally you get the form that says, you know, this is this thing costs NAN dollars <laughs> per pound or something. <laughs> Something Does that mean really it's free it? or very expensive? I don't know. Oh, that's not a number. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, we both clicked. <laughs> you click, you click. Don't send it.
for interrupt is when you write arithmetic. <laughs> What's APL? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You don't realize that you're dealing with a completely different language, right? So this is a very well integrated example. But there's another language that does not have numbers or plus or minus built. That's right. He means that this is this works in all of them, I guess. Except this, like notation that interrupts in all the environments. That's different, have. though. Inter interrupt and there's portability. Well, okay. This is portable. This is yeah. So one plus one is portable, ex except except lisps. Except lisps. And not, yeah. And and other such Polish and reverse Polish notation. Yeah, yeah. Things. That, that's pretty good. Pretty I, good. I was just teaching somebody. Sorry. Oh, I was teaching somebody using APL this morning, and showing how uh, dialect APL integrates with uh, .NET, mm. and that has a really really good interop where yeah. even though they're array model differences and uh and type type system that's not really there in the apl uh but automatic casting and and so on mm. uh, is going on and and overloads of apl primitives so like so something we were looking at is we're using net to create a, a daytime objects so for yeah. system date times and then we can use the apl primitives greater than less than so on to compare them and that just works mm. yeah. That's, I think, is very nice interrupt. Yeah, that's really nice. And the calculus, for example. All right? This is how you would write one plus one in the pure lambda calculus with church encoded numbers. All right? What? Let me ask you this. Would you want to write this on a day-to-day -day basis? No, you would prefer to write the first one, right? So with this that has a high bar and a low bar, I want you to consider the tools and, and languages that you use for your everyday work. Shouldn't we read what it says for the listener? Sorry, yeah, good, great point. So gold the gold standard, standard is one plus one. Hey. Now you, you can do the the lambda calculus standard if you want. Yeah, uh, the lambda, the <laughs> it's poop poop emoji standard according to this. Yeah, it's supposed to gold standard, yeah. Yeah, um, and it's lambda m dot lambda n dot. Hope that comes across dot lambda f dot lambda x dot lambda. Oh, sorry, dot .mf. Oh, come on, you've got to start over now. Yeah, all right. You made a mistake. Lambda, lambda m, m dot, dot lambda, lambda n. n dot lambda f dot lambda x dot mf open paren nfx close paren lambda f dot lambda x dot fx lambda f dot lambda x dot fx. Yeah. Do you know lambda calculus? Not enough to understand what in the world is going on here. I've, I learned a little bit from you looking at these uh, things about combinators and uh, dyadic operators in APL versus uh, combinators. And mm. Maybe so, we should do that as like a homework is choose a like a notation and, and like and look into it for comparison and contrast. Because <laughs> I feel like I don't know that much about. Um, I'm like aware of all kinds of different notations for things, but I haven't never tried to use most of them in any capacity. So I think that'd be interesting. Anyway, the point being, lambda calculus one plus one very verbose. Traditional it's, mathematics. No, it's not and... good for adding numbers. Let's say <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, one plus one, very concise, very good. Yeah. Where on the scale does it fit? It most likely fits somewhere in the middle. And we often have to import libraries to use.
This is the, the whelmed standard. So neither over nor underwhelmed. Simply. Oh, I see. It's just whelmed. Yes. The whelmed standard says it's. I don't know if this is a particular language or it's just some pseudo code. It says two code lines. Clearly, they're code lines. Uh, it says import arith, and then the next line says arith dot add, and then it has um, a parenthesized uh, list of uh, arguments, which is arith dot one comma arith dot one. Mm. A very strong type. Well, no, everything's an object. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Moving Everything on. is an object. Well, I don't know if uh, one is an object. <laughs> yeah, well, well, one is something one that is a member in of an object in, inside arithmetic, right? Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, <laughs> somewhere between one plus one and uh, lambda calculus hell. It's this whelmed <laughs> standard. Lambda calculus is not probably not intended to do the basic. No, of course not. No, no, it's further. Yeah. Use another language, basically. And that's okay. But if that's the pinnacle of human design programming languages, I would be very, very sad. And yes, to the lone lisper at the back of the room, I hear you, mate. But I think there, there are better things like tree calculus in the future. So let's go back to properties of good notation, shall we? Here, here, here are the um, reminders. We've talked about interrupt. Now let's talk about fit for purpose, right? How do you know that your notation is fit for purpose? Well. To misquote Einstein, it should be as simple as possible and no simpler. So contra program, we should not be using the most powerful language. We should be using the least powerful language. You should not be using a Turing complete language, right, to match a string that's written in a regular language. He says he misquotes uh, Einstein. The actual quote that he's showing is, it can scarcely be denied that the supreme goal of all theory is to make the irreducible basic elements as simple and as few as possible without having to surrender the adequate representation of a single datum of experience. Use yep. a regular expressions engine. And fortunately, most programming languages nowadays do actually have a regular expressions engine built in. So the process is quite smooth. Oops, sorry. So let me ask you this, right? What about ETL and the other things that data engineering data engineers do, right? A very common thing that we do nowadays is to have microservices, and we would. No, I think I have looked up what ETL stood for recently. What was that? Uh, but I think it's to do with getting data in and out of systems and between them. I can't remember what it stands for now. But I'm sure I looked this up recently because I was reading something. Anyway, probably describe fine. our operations written in YAML. Yeah, if you look it up quick, you can let us know. <laughs> Extract, transform, load. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, like I say, you're getting data between systems, so you might have to transform, you know, the format of them in order to get it into one place or or make it usable in one place or another or whatever. Uh, I so see. It's kind of it's kind of the stuff at your interface level. Right. Yeah. And we submit them to the microservice or, or product, and they will pass the YAML and do the thing and then pass it on down the pipeline, right? Uh, the notation used is universal. It's YAML. But more often than not, it's not fit for purpose. And that's why we have to come up with hacks like templates and YAML. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Cool. So the last property of good notations is that the no notations are distinctive. What what's the problem with YAML that he hasn't in mind? I, YAML is very <laughs> complex, right? There's a lot of stuff you can do. I hear people rag on YAML a lot, but I don't use it enough 
in any complex fashion to really know. I, the, the only thing that's a bugbear of mine is what do I use it for? Some, um, so I think MookDocs uses it for the config and some other GitHub Jenkins y. No, because that's the goat. That's the, that's using Groovy, isn't it? Anyway, you see, yeah, I use it for some things and uh, in lists or when you have members of an object, then if I've got the white space wrong, then it complains. And so, so um, that's Python. Yeah, well, I don't do enough result. Python to really get annoyed <laughs> by that. But the other thing is I've got like tabs as default in my notepad plus plus, but then sometimes I'll get something and it's got like spaces and then I'll have to like decide to like change my whole mode just to accommodate that or whatever. Um, that's a different debate, but I know that, yeah, that's the only thing I imagine. Well, yeah. I think it came I know up. it's complex, but and then there are lots, lots of rules. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mentioned something about. I think it's a famous thing that they don't like, uh, or infamous thing they don't like YAML in Norway because it oh, right. to denote booleans, including yes and no. And then when you have country codes and they have the country code for Norway, it's no, and you get false instead yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because they don't. They try. I mean, it's. Is intended to be nice for people to use, so you can omit quotes in strings, except if it's reserved words and characters. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, it, uh, maybe you end up having to learn nice. a bunch of exceptions, basically. Yeah, and and I Instead as soon as you have rules. something smooth uh, like that, then there will be all the exceptions to when things aren't as obvious. Markdown also has these kind of issues. I mean. There are things that when you want to write them in in Markdown, it gets really awkward. Yeah. Uh, for example, uh, people write uh, this. Uh, it's called an emoticon, emoticon, mm. uh, shrug emoticon, which is easy to type in. <laughs> mostly type in in APL. I t I type it as as the negative symbol, backslash underscore. Minus. Yeah, right. The high minus backslash underscore open paren, and then I use uh, the commuter till there is this symbol because that's like the face thing. Close paren underscore forward slash and high minus. Yeah, um, and this. But then a markdown processor might think that the underscore something underscore should be in italics, <laughs> or maybe that backslash. That's there after the initial. So then what do you do? Surround it in back quotes, so it's a code. For this pre <laughs> so it's code. code no, no, but, but because then you have the backslash. Oh, so you just escapes the, the underscore. <laughs> so even if you wrap it in backslash in back text to be code, it might think that you're escaping the underscore, and so it just renders that a single underscore, meaning that the emoticon dropped an arm. Uh, so something that can be very nice in some context, it might just model things in other contexts. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is when you're working in one language and then you move to a different language, you will know that you're working in a different language. I know I cannot be the only one who gets stuck in piles of cloud formation of YAML just to get that bloody SageMaker to do the thing I want to do, right? So when you have layers and layers of non-distinctive language you're, you're causing, you're going to have A, cost prob uh, be in trouble, or B, you're just creating another reason for that and a new startup to exist in that ecosystem picture I showed earlier. Now, so far, the things I've been saying have been very abstract and pretty far from what data engineers do. So let's bring this back a bit. What exactly are my recommendations, right? The tools exist in the market, but I, they're not the things I prefer to use, but I accept that they exist and I would use them. Instead, 
we can focus on the process of solving problems. I want you to take away from this talk the way I framed problem solving. I want you to think about how language is used to constrain a problem space. Now, think about how you can enable your team to work with individual flair and yet cohesively as a whole organism. Now, I want to impress upon you that uh, the, the, the solutions that we have today are pretty damn terrible, right? So I want you to go and invent specific languages for your specific problems. I want you to solve your problem multiple times with multiple languages and then take a step back, right? I want you to then look at it. How are they different from one another? How are your solutions similar to one another, right? Study what unifies the difference because that's the core of your problem. Solve that. Okay, and in, if you do that, you also reduce the cognitive load uh, that may exist when you have a thousand uh, languages blooming. Now, and, uh, and while I won't give you specific recommendations like use Lisp, use Go, rewrite in Rust, I will give you some alternatives that you can take right now because there are simply other options that are far superior to what we have in industry. Instead of using YAML for all the things, death to YAML, we should split up our notation. For configuration stuff, use Q, use DAO, right? These languages have an excellent verification mechanisms for their grammar. And for your data language, instead of using JSON and having to validate with uh, the JSON types, whatever, use protobuf, right? If you have a process that ingests raw data and put them in some sort of structured SQL-like thing, use dbt so that you can verify the, the, the data fits into a particular schema, right? Use Malloy to break things down into smaller parts that you can look at it and say, okay, this is obviously correct. That, that way you can, you can man manually um, verify your modules. And all these things, by the way, fall into a class of what Gary Miller calls deterministic name algebra. And if you're a language nerd like me, this is actually a pretty exciting space to be. So, now we've come to the end of the yeah, come back. What I want to impress uh, is the uh, Do I have anything to say? I did try to start looking at these. Um, and then I think the conclusions were like some combination of uh, I'm, not, I'm not doing enough yeah. in these spaces to warrant like learning a whole new thing versus like sufficiently getting by with whatever I'm using already. Um, you often don't have a choice, right? The choice has been made for you, and you need to use some kind of tool, and it's already using JSON, so... <laughs> so all I have to do is convert my stuff from JSON to protobuf, and then find yeah. a protobuf uh, translator importer, or write one. I guess that's the issue, isn't it? Um, it's, it's if you're making a whole system, right? The full stack thing you need to decide, well, what kind of language am I going to use to communicate between these parts mm. or store this kind of thing? And then you choose these, I think. I see. Or not. Mm. Also seems uh, more abstract than thinking about specific problems you're trying to solve. This is more about, well, he's talking about data engineering. This is a data engineering conference, so I guess that's fair enough. <laughs> uh, anyway. In algebra, and if you're a language nerd like me, this is actually a pretty exciting space to be. So now we've come to the end of the talk, and what I want to impress upon you is this, right? Language is the structure of rules and elements of a system. We solve problems 
by establishing the rules and finding out what exactly are the elements of the problem. In short, we use language to solve problems. When we write language down, we call that, uh, we call that notation, and it's used to manipulate terms of language. And I've given you three examples of how changing the notation changes the way we look at a problem. You've got Einstein's notation, making neural networks faster. You've got Conway's notation, discovering a whole new zoo of things. And APL, changing the way you think about programming. What I'm trying to say is that we should use more diverse forms of notation to solve our problems. But in, in modern day data engineering tasks, we're sort of stuck on one universal notation. And this is making a lot of our problems harder to, to solve because it makes it more difficult for us to think through our problems. Right? And we are also creating accidental complexity. So ironically, to make things simpler, we shall endeavor to use specific languages for specific problems. And it may seem a lot, but it makes the overall system a lot easier to understand. With that, thank you for listening to this weird guy giving a rant. Thank you. It's giving me real um, how to draw an owl, draw some circles draw the rest of the owl kind of vibes of like <laughs> how, how are we gonna i've just explained to you how these are really difficult problems that no one's really got a good answer to um how are we going to solve them and the answer is go solve go solve them and uh we'll see you later see how it turns out in another five ten years maybe it's supposed to encourage people to go and experiment and I think so, yeah. yeah in try, reality, yeah, it's not, I'm not really um, ragging on it. And also, what can you do, right? This is how this is how you start doing this or continue to do this type of thing. Experiment yeah. with different uh, languages and tools and and see what really works for your use case. It's interesting. There are there are notations. I think, uh, yeah, fields where they need to represent concisely, communicate concisely, and something about their field they will come up with notations for it and there might be multiple notations for it uh, things that we don't they're not just computer related things um, you could call them technology things but even that is uh, is questionable I was just thinking a couple of examples of notations that are not computer things are mm. dentists have notations for this teeth and what's wrong with oh, them oh and they read that out yeah, you, they you have can to hear do... them saying it when they're poking your mouth, and exactly. So they need to communicate verbally, and then they write something down that doesn't correspond to what they said, and it's it's gobbledygook <laughs> to the patient, but they understand <laughs> each other. Um, another one that uh, I don't know if people use this in speaking, but certainly in in writing, now is maybe a little bit less used than it used to be. Mm. But um, engines on trains, locomotives. Mm. Um, it used to be much more important than today w exactly what wheel set they had. So you uh, could have like a steam engine and it would, the front of it could have a, a couple of axles of uh, of just running uh, wheels that help guide the locomotive the right way into a curve. Okay. And then you could have, say, three axles of, um, of actually... Pulling wheels. Pulling, yeah, pulling wheels that tend to be bigger. And then maybe you have a trailing single lead, uh, yeah. or the trail, whatever, because if you run backwards, just lead um, wheels that I'm not sure why they're actually there. I'm sure there are good reasons for that. But then, and that's important. Maybe I it's guess. doing the same thing if it's if it's reversing. Trains can yeah, reverse. Maybe, but, or, or maybe for carrying some auxiliary weight when mm. when there's extra. But there's some notation for describing there's the configuration notation for this. Yeah. of wheels on a train 
Yeah, and there are a couple of different systems for the, for this notation. Um, that we should get these. The... That sounds like a good contest problem that we can devise from <laughs> passing whales. It's still used occasionally for modern day locomotives tend to be more boring in that they'll just have like two buggies that have two or three axles of, of wheels. Mm. Uh, but you, occasionally you see something like uh, one of them, the one of the notations is, is Bobo. So B stands for two. Uh, so, and that so that means two buggies of two axles mm. that are pulling, uh, or Coco, two buggies that have each three wheels that are pulling, and I'm sure that in the uh, in the workshop or in the planning meetings when they would send out the they have this set of of locomotives that need to go out and pull these loads from here to there and it's i'm sure it's been very important exactly which locomotive goes where and what mm. types they are um and so they developed this kind of notation for it um and sure you could write out in english or in json or whatever what the wheel setup looks like but it's not concise and it's not so it's there mm. it's not fit for purpose like, yeah um, for whatever it is that they, they were mm. doing um, they're also I think even notations for uh, for like plugs electrical connectors and what the various pins are doing mm. um, those kind of things so engineering things more than just programming things yes uh, I think this was a really, uh, really great talk for um, getting to step back and like think about, oh, okay, what is it we're actually doing? What is it we're actually using? Where a lot of time doing stuff day to day, you can be like, like we said, you don't, you don't really get to choose. You don't always get to choose the tools. You're sort of in a system already, um, and you're sort of just plugging away, away at it. Or even if you do get to choose, but you're so used to doing it this one way, you just keep doing it that one way. Mm. Though another way might be better. Yep. To do it. Okay, I guess we'll finish up uh, with this. Uh, you can check out our little website, apl.show, and mm -hmm. it will have some notes. Or if you're watching this in the video, then the description of the video will have uh, links, notes to the things that we've uh, mentioned here. Um, and then we'll see or hear you next well not hearing you but whatever <laughs> next time until next time <laughs>